Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we're actually going to be talking about movies that are about movies. Because Hollywood loves making movies about itself. Mm-hmm. Which hit something of a uh, pinnacle last year where you had uh, tons and tons of films that were in some ways about movies, whether they were about like Hollywood itself, a la Babylon, if they were about movie theaters like Empire of Light, uh, if they were like self-referential movies about the director's own careers, like the great auteur Kevin Smith, who made Clerks <laughs> 3 about the making of Clerks, um, you know, like it was it was an interesting phenomenon where um, and it's certainly not an unobserved. There's a video essay, I think, by Thomas Flight, although I could have that maker wrong. Uh, about you know 2022 as the year of like movies about movies so here we are getting to it in may of 2023 <laughs> timely as ever yeah fingers are always on the pulse <laughs> i'm not really sure what made us pick this one it's just it's been in our ideas list for a while and we just yeah what up why not yeah it's, it's a fun uh it's a fun topic i mean as much as it can be easy to be snide about like Hollywood making movies about their own magic because you know gross uh there's actually a lot of variety in this type of uh story I mean it's not even really a type of story but just generally speaking making a film that's in some ways about movies I mean as it will be demonstrated throughout our picks there's a lot of variety in the movies you and I have chosen um I've debatably broken the rules again but we'll get to that surprise uh, surprise <laughs> you know what uh i i don't i don't abide by rules i'm a rebel and i carry <laughs> my own flag um but yeah it's 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 uh it's a fun time i think and there's some interesting stuff in terms of how these films whether they generally speaking lean on the scale of like celebratory films about movies or if they're more cynical and sometimes they kind of operate on both levels at once and that's always interesting yeah and when with the and the famous adage for writers of course is write what you know so that makes sense for filmmakers to do what they know mm-hmm. <laughs> it just it's kind of natural of course you're going to get a lot of things like this so yeah and there's also from an audience perspective there is an inherent interest in that world i mean we've been remaking a star is born for decades now and originally, the first two versions of it are about, you know, Hollywood, not music. And actually, arguably, the first three, because before A Star Is Born, there was uh, a film called What Price Hollywood, I think, from 1932, which is not, I don't think A Star Is Born is like technically a remake of that film, but they're pretty similar. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's you know, there's historically been an interest of the audience to have a peek into that world. So it's not just filmmaker indulgence. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree too. Like we are movie fans and it makes sense that we would want to watch movies about movies. Mhm. Absolutely. Right. Um well, which I guess Get into it? Yeah, we'll start with what I think is hands down the most cynical movie about movies ever made. <laughs> uh Robert Altman's The Player. It's, there, yeah. it's Really, for me, what it comes down to for it being cynical is it is the only movie about movies I've ever seen that is so 
detached from the actual art of filmmaking. Like it's just business. There is no pretense of movies as anything but a product to be sold because it's told not about filmmakers or screenwriters, but it's told from the perspective of a studio executive uh, who's played or is named Griffin Mill. He's played by Tim Robbins. And the moment I'm going to talk about, it really doesn't have that much to do with movies themselves, or at least why I want to talk about it. It's just a, a detail in the story that I find incredibly clever when I finally clued in. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. So I thought, yeah, let's talk about this here. So uh, fair warning, I'm going to spoil the entire film really here. I'm going to talk about like the mystery plot and uh, that element and just it completely unpack it. So if you've not seen The Player, I'd recommend skipping ahead to uh, Ian's first pick because it is a brilliant film and uh, I don't want to ruin the surprises. So, And just uh, in case you guys aren't aware, I do like put the times that we start the separate movies in the show notes. So yeah so. so there you go ian's the hero to the people he's uh putting <laughs> guides so i don't ruin the movie for you so if you're still listening i'm assuming you've seen robert altman's the player so the basic plot of the film is that griffin has been getting these postcards from a screenwriter who he's jilted in the past promised oh we'll have a meeting we'll set up your project and left him to die on the vine and the screenwriter is seeking revenge by sending him these threatening postcards and messages. And Griffin thinks he tracks down the writer to this guy named David, uh, David Kahane, uh, who was played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And he thinks he's the one sending these letters and he confronts him. They have an altercation and with Griffin murdering this writer. And it's like, that becomes what the film is about is like, is he able to cover up this murder or not? And while that's happening, he's still getting the letters and postcards. So this wasn't the person who was threatening him and blackmailing him. And then that keeps happening, but the focus really starts to shift into it becoming increasingly likely Griffin is going to be found out because he was incredibly sloppy and in covering up his tracks. And uh, it's very abundantly clear to anyone looking that he definitely killed this guy. But then Thanks to the one witness the case has being uh, pretty bad at remembering faces, blows the case for uh, for the cops, but succeeds for Griffin, who gets away with everything. We flash forward months later, and everything that was a problem for him has been solved on its own. He's now running the studio. He's super successful, rich. He's got you know the the woman who he basically like completely dropped his girlfriend for to lust after instead who was the girlfriend of the guy he killed he's with her now everything's worked out perfectly for griffin and on his drive home he gets a call in his car phone classic 90s big <laughs> shot uh power move um from someone who works for him about like griffin we've got this pitch for a script and the guy on the other end's like, hey, Griffin, remember me? I used to be in the postcard business. And I got a pitch for you about this real piece of shit studio executive who, you know, he's getting blackmailed by this uh, writer. And then he kills a writer, but he kills the wrong one, basically pitching the movie we've just seen. <laughs> and you might be listening, thinking, yeah, Dan, I've seen the player. But how is this a little moment? This is a massive moment. This is like the last scene in the film, the revelation of the mystery. It uh, It's the most overt example of the film's own inherent cleverness and commenting on itself how is this a little moment and the what i want to really fixate on is the detail of who is the one who's been uh threatening griffin the whole movie because we don't see the person we just hear a voice over the telephone and doesn't immediately seem clear who this is and the film makes no explicit mention that it's anyone we've seen before but we have seen this character before 
Do you know where I'm going with this, Ian? I don't know, but I... Because I've never really thought about it until I watched the scene for this. So I have a couple of ideas. So I'm curious where you're going with it. So the guy who's pitching this script, we yeah. saw way back when the writer that uh, Griffin kills at his funeral, there's a writer who gives a eulogy for him. He talks about Hollywood stepping over the writers and David was a great writer and blah, blah, blah. That's the guy who's blackmailing Griffin. Mm. And I had no idea. And I watched the film several times and it was only going through researching it for my most recent video on uh art without the artist that i was going through it i'm like wait a minute that's not just like a voice because i always i assumed it was just someone we hadn't seen and that to me right. was like good enough of like okay like you know they as griffin says later we look at you know hundreds of scripts every year we can only green light like 10 or 12 so it's hard we have to say no to a lot of people and griffin seems like a pretty shitty person it's not surprising that he's been horrible to dozens and dozens and dozens of people we'll never see but realizing oh no 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 it is someone we do see in the film i think is just on a sort of on the level of like constructing a mystery is just really darn cool <laughs> and that it's right in front of us and maybe you as an audience member did pick up oh it's that guy i did not um and i also think it's reflective of how the film so effectively shifts focus where once griffin is killed um this david uh character the wrong writer and it starts to become about griffin trying to outmaneuver the cops and then also get what he wants done you kind of start or you stop thinking strictly about like who's blackmailing griffin because other things become more important so that it can still surprise you at the end when it comes back with oh this is who it is and i also just think it's it's a level of confidence to have it be mystery fully solved and have it be something that connects to something we've seen way at the beginning of the film. And then not even mention that. Like, don't just. Yeah. Don't draw attention to. Yeah. So that people have to watch a second time to figure it mm -hmm. out. I get that. You really need to be paying attention to clue in. That's like, oh, that's the same voice. Because we only see him very briefly at the funeral. And he doesn't seem that important there. There's other things going on in the scene that are more immediately grabbing. But uh Yeah. I love this. I think it's fantastic. Hmm. See, I thought you were going a couple different places with it. I because at first I thought that the voice might have been Griffin's himself, but that's not Tim Robbins's voice, so that doesn't really work. Then the other one was the other one I thought of when I was watching this is is it Robert Altman? Because <laughs> mm. that would have been like a cool meta level to it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I expected <laughs> your prediction to be. <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned the the it being griffin because that ending was tim robbins's idea allegedly the book ends very differently um but tim and robert altman were talking and i think tim robbins just said it should end with him being pitched the movie in the same way that mash ends with you know tonight's right. movie is mash and it like it's the movie we've just seen is announced at the end yeah um and uh, according to Tim Robbins, he says this in a joking, jovial, loving way. He immediately, you know, said this is the ending and said, I will never give you the credit for that idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that's and the other thing is like on a, on a bigger level, like the scene is like a perfect conclusion to this story. And I also think it's kind of pivotal that it's it is clever the way it ends by being pitching itself. But there's also something really poignant about the fact that like 
Griffin getting away with everything is not just, you know, a sort of cynical, like bad ending that the bad guy wins. But I think there's really, there's several layers of critique there. One, very literally how powerful men in Hollywood can get away with what they want. Certainly we've seen that be all the more true historically in the wake of things like the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein. Uh, but also the fact that like crucial to this ending is the way in the midst of it being so clever and so perfectly tied up, Bonnie, who's like the one, the closest thing the film has to like a good person, uh, is so cruelly disregarded. And the last we see of her, she's sobbing and left completely friendless and alone. Like there, it's clever and there's a winking quality to it, but it's also really mean in a way that I think is essential. And I also think the film's making a bit of a sly commentary about um Hollywood escapism in and of itself and this idea of like, you know, the sort of men who don't deserve to have the happy endings always getting them anyway, because that's the narrative. Um, that's the formula. I think it's there, it's more than just uh, you know, the sort of clever mirroring of the film within the film with Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis before then, which is also great, or the pitching of the player. Which they say too. What what do you call this thing? The player. Like it's yeah. It's the movie we've watched, um, but it's also specifically this the way it so blatantly portrays how powerful men can get away with all manner of crimes, no matter how obviously horrible and criminal they are. Um, yeah, I think so that's great. Yeah, so there is definitely even if it's not Robert Oldman <laughs> at the end, there's still that meta level of like you just watched a movie, but this is what it took to make that movie. And, but the final product is what's important, right? That's what, that's kind of like the, the cynical message. It's like, mm-hmm. as long as we get you a movie that entertains you, what do you care? Mm-hmm. <laughs> whether, whether some writer somewhere gets killed and. Yeah. 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 Or, or a, a woman who's working amidst the crew is, you know, cheated on and abandoned and left in sobs doesn't matter and because griffin he's the protagonist he got the happy ending doesn't matter who he had to step on to get it exactly the main character got the happy ending yeah it's it's an interesting way to end the movie it definitely it definitely works way more than him getting his comeuppance and um, and just that blurring of the lines between the reality of the movie and you know, the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it works really well. And who better to have a handle on that than a master like Robert Altman? Yeah, and also someone who had dealt with all manner of Hollywood bullshit his own life. Um, it's funny, though, because I, I thought about this movie a lot when I watched, of all things, uh, Chef, the John Favreau classic. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is pretty openly a metaphor for his own experiences working in Hollywood and wanting to do something smaller instead of the big budget tentpole movies he was doing which is why now all he makes is the mandalorian um (laughs) but uh you know and i like that film it's an affable fun watch but it's very like sort of straw manny of like he's very clearly right and the underdog and i think like there's there's not a lot of like nuance really and i find it interesting that altman of all the filmmakers you'd think would have like valid reason to like really go at hollywood and he does but he also has no respect for the writers in the film you know the the david kahane character is 
not a good writer and is told like that's important to the story is that he's not actually a good writer and he's also kind of a pretentious blowhard um and the director who's played by uh richard e grant who pitches his his big oscary movie that's ultimately the one that they film at the end with bruce willis and julia roberts that completely sells out and goes with the happy ending that the test screen wants but the movie he pitches is also terrible it's a cheap middle brow sentimental piece of schmaltz that's taking real life tragedies and and uh, injustices in the world and using it not to explore those issues but as an excuse to for the filmmaker to pontificate on how great and amazing they are so it's a film that's cynical about hollywood but it's cynical about not just the executives even though they're the brunt of the film but the entire ecosystem how everyone is complicit in the selling out um which again, like it's when I say it's the most cynical, that's part of why. Like it's there's it's all product. There's no art. Yeah, he really doesn't. It he, like he doesn't delve into the idea of <laughs> whether the movies are good or not. Right? Like he's like, like I'm thinking of even shows like Entourage, which which is kind of behind the scenes Hollywoodism. At least the characters there are having like they're having conversations about you know what with is this movie actually going to be worth it or are we just doing it for the money um but here there's there's no question it's all for the money <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they don't care it's all capital it's either it usually how much money can it make or you know can it bestow on us some prestige can it you know win awards really like that's it, it's there's no there, there's no value outside of that um Speaking of awards, did this get nominated or was this actually like no? This we was were nominated. Not celebrating this, oh they did. Oh they did nominate. Picture and director. Oh, good, good for the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the thing is like I I want to say there's an Altman quote circulating. I'm not sure. I I couldn't track it down to verify, but it's been reported that he said it's a very mild satire, not likely to offend anyone. And I kind of get that in the sense that like it is so it's so inherently clever and so knowingly playing with audience expectations and in overt dialogue with them that it is fun, but it's like, again, like it's so mean and it is so cynical. Like, yeah, I think the fact that it is so overly clever can kind of maybe soothe that and make it more palatable than even something like Babylon, which is like an assault, but the, core of it i think is just is much more biting than that quote gives the film credit for yeah that's fair uh the one thing i will say there's one thing about this movie that drives me crazy (laughs) because there's like there's quite a bit of like cameos in this right yeah yeah it's pretty full of cameos and then it has Whoopi goldberg playing the police detective Mm -hmm. instead of a cameo of herself not only that, but I'm pretty, but I'm pretty sure the movie actually mentions the movie Ghost. Yep, which stars Whoopi Goldberg. And we also there's a scene where she handles an Oscar. <laughs> what is he saying about that? <laughs> well, apparently it was. I don't. It's funny. I listened to the commentary, and I want to say uh, the way she was cast was basically her just being like, "I want to do a movie with you, and I want to do this with you." And Altman saying, "There's not a part for you," and her being like, "I can play the police detective." And him being like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And I actually, I, I get what you're saying, that it is weird because she is such a, not just celebrity, but of that time specifically. She was pretty big then. 
Yeah, uh, but I love her performance. I think she completely re-energizes the sort of detective in a noir mystery because she, you know, is a black woman and not and and like not someone who has the presence not just for reasons of race or gender, but just generally does not have the presence of like a cop, you know, even though she right. played one in Theodore Rex, um, <laughs> which is and the dinosaur forget movie. That. <laughs> um, but you know, she doesn't have like the, the gruff cop energy at all. And that makes her, she gets unnerving in the way that she starts to get close to Griffin and exposing him in ways that are completely unique. Like the, I love the scene where he's in their office and, you know, before she starts interrogating him, she starts, you know, whose tampons are these? Or, or like, and she's like looking for her own. It's like, oh, wait, these aren't mine. They're, the size are wrong. And like, she's like twirling one on her finger as she's interrogating Griff. And it's such a bizarre, like, is she doing this deliberately to screw with him? Or is it just another weird detail that he's trying to deal with? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It, I, I can see why it's distracting in the context of the the rest of the cast and the time. But I love her in the film. I think she's so great. <laughs> it's not really that distracting. I just thought it was funny. Uh, you know what? I think it's good that they give her the Oscar scene just to fully lean into it. It's like, you know what? Let's not pretend. Let's just yeah. go for it. Oh, boy. And you watched this recently, right? For your video that you made. I did. So it's pretty fresh in your mind. Yeah, which was a welcome rewatch because I've seen it a bunch. But this newest viewing, I'm like, I this is top tier Altman for me. There's a lot I want to revisit, but like right now, if I were to make a list, it'd be number two. So mm. nice. next to Popeye. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't joke. There are people who love Popeye. So there are people who love everything these days. So this is true. <laughs> this is true. I remember having a conversation about that exact phenomenon at the bar with my mates. And uh, for whatever reason, one of them wanted to look up one of the Yu-Gi-Oh spinoff shows and they Googled it. And literally like the second thing after like the show's Wikipedia entry was like, why Yu-Gi-Oh five D's is better than you remember. It's like, see, <laughs> yep. The yep. retrospective reassessment uh, complex will come for everything. Everything. Gotta love it all. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, I, um, I did not know who it was. Who the postcard guy was? Still not entirely sure. I could think I would it's have to watch the guy the movie at the funeral who's giving the eulogy, and, and that's it. That's the only ex- time he shows up. Yeah, that's it. And he reads an excerpt <laughs> of the last thing David ever wrote, and you know he talks about like you know these Hollywood guys they can't do it without us, and he just seems like a burnout screenwriting whatever, but he's the true villain of the film. There you go, and he just recognized it based on voice alone. That's the idea. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I recognized it because I was looking through the special features and like, oh yeah, it's this guy. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, they're sweet. So, okay, well, we should go to something maybe a little less cynical. A little less, yeah. <laughs> a little much less cynical, yeah. So my my first movie is gonna be Cinema Paradiso, 1988. Um, so it's Italian film by Giuseppe Tornatore and it's a movie that loves movies yeah but not so much it's this one's not really like about you know behind the scenes movies like the player it's not about how to make movies it's just about loving movies and just how much people like them and 
I mean, the main character is a direct movie director and he's looking back on his life, but it doesn't really get into like the movies he makes or anything like that. It's just what inspired him to become who he is. And the moment I'm going to talk about is a moment that I've always loved from this movie, which is a scene, you know, it, it takes place back in, I don't know what, I don't even know what time period, like 40s, I think we're looking at. Mm, I that sounds right based on the films that are shown in that end yeah. montage yeah because there's yeah. like yeah because they talk about like gone with the wind and stuff so <clears throat> that sounds about right and the theater is full but there's still a whole crowd of people who want in and basically the theater owner is like nope get out of here come back again later we're full but of course they want to watch the movie and the story is from the point of view of this little kid and he's kind of become this mentee of the projectionist of the theater whose name is alfredo and they i mean most of the movie is the bond that they build between each other because the little kid is basically like you know learning how to project a movie and and learning to love movies through that and alfredo's you know they're looking out the window it's kind of like this old italian building like it's not like a fancy movie theater it's a pretty pretty low-key movie theater and he decided he's like so salvador should we uh should we give the people what they want and so he ends up like using this little window to basically allow him to project the movie normally into the theater but he can also reflect the image and he moves it just enough so it goes out of the window of the building of the projection room onto across the town square and onto like the wall of an outside wall of a just regular apartment building. And so everybody can watch the, the movie in the town square. Um, that idea, that image is just always stuck with me ever since I watched the movie, like years and years and years ago. And it's always been one of my favorite parts of this film. Cause I think it speaks a lot to like the idea that movies are for everybody, right? Like it's, it's an art form that's not, you know, only for the elite. Everybody, everybody can love movies. Everybody can go see a movie and enjoy a movie. And even these people who are, even though it's just reasons that the theater is full or whatever, but even, even just people who are hanging out in town square can watch and enjoy this movie. And everybody gets to be a piece of this. Um, And this projectionist believes that. And so, you know, he, he doesn't think that you should only watch movies if you can afford it or anything like that. And I like that idea. It's kind of a nice, simple idea. Just that democratization. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, the. No, I think that fits. Yeah. Just the fact that it's for everybody. And I like that idea. Yeah. I like that too. I think that's, uh, and that's something the film is very much about, uh, given that if I remember correctly, at least the, the main village that it's set for most of the runtime is a, kind of like a not poor village exactly but it's not like prospering um you know there is economic hardship there so uh that escapism takes on a different context than it would in say like a metropolitan area or something um or a town like swimming in wealth um i also like this the way that it especially thinking about this as a film that like is it's not a kid's movie per se but the main character for the 
for the best parts of it as a kid. Yeah. I think those are the, the most interesting part, apart from the ending, which is beautiful. Those sections are the best parts of the film. Um, and it is kind of that like friendly foreign language movie that, yeah, it's from another country and it's in another language, but you can watch as a fairly general audience and get into. And I like the way that it um, kind of this scene specifically makes it clear what like movies really are on a presentation level where it's not like the screen in and of itself. It's this idea of like projecting light against, you know, a surface. Yeah. That's what the movie is, not the screen really. Um, And in a way, I think it actually gains power as time goes by and, you know, more one home viewing becomes more and more central with, uh, you know, VHS and DVD, then Blu-ray and then of course streaming. Uh, but also, sadly, the decline of movie theaters where people are used to seeing movies like as an extension of the screen. I mean, there's even like that, you know, screen time is an expression that exists and this idea that movies aren't really strictly about the screen itself. The screen's important, but it's this idea of just on a very boiling it down to like it's it's light projecting against a backdrop. Yeah. And I think that's it's a really good way of like visualizing that without explaining it um there's even a part where because it's projected against an apartment building there's even a part where this it's the guy's apartment opens the door onto his balcony but he's now in the movie (laughs) which is pretty good (laughs) and then they're all yelling at him to go back inside so (laughs) oh that's wonderful it's like a more realist uh extension of what uh keaton's doing in sherlock jr where he like enters the film, but then as it cuts, he's still stuck in wherever he is. So he's trapped in whatever <laughs> scenario. Um, yeah, I really like that. I like, you know, and I mean, because it's a visual medium, light being projected just works really well on film, uh, very literally. So, um, yeah, it, it's a way to sort of make that real in a really beautiful way. Yeah, and it's it it is the physics of it is really cool because when he's like, when he's moving the window, you know, he's getting it just to the right place. Well, the movie itself is tiny. Like it's basically the same size as our zoom boxes right now. Right. And it's, and it's moving along the wall of the room and it's tiny, but once it reaches the window, you know, it can zoom out enough that now it's huge and it's taking up an entire building uh, wall, which is pretty cool. So you get to see all that physics play out. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's it's an interesting uh, scene too to compare to like because Empire of Light, which came out last year, the Sam Mendes film, I think is trying to in some ways do a similar, do some similar things as this film. It's very different in a lot of ways too, but like it doesn't have that visual magic when it comes to portraying these ideas. Like the main scene is you have Toby Jones just explaining, you know, the process of like light and twenty four frames a second and per, you know illusion of movement and. It's like, and it's, you know, performed in this very, like, wondrous and awe way, the way he's delivering the lines. But it's just, it feels very, I don't know, trite when it's just laid out like that. But seeing it visualized works a lot better. Also in part because, again, it's a film that at this point, too, is skewing younger. So it it feels a bit more believable than him explaining this to, like, a guy in his 20s. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And just as on a whole with this movie i mean say what you will about it i kind of 
I kind of resent the reputation that has kind of got amongst cinephiles, which is almost like, you know, this is, this is a foreign film for people who aren't really that into film and, sure. and they kind of look their nose down on it's it. It's like Amelie. Yeah. It's and a I, foreign movie, not a foreign film. <laughs> to quote I, Bojack Horseman. I just find that so snobby and just, I don't know, it bugs me. Like, I like this movie and I'm not ashamed to say it. And I get where they're coming from because it's 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 an accessible movie, which I think is great. But I mean, I get what they're saying. But I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, that's it's fair. snobbish and just get over yourselves. <laughs> People <laughs> like this movie. That's good. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like, I, yeah. I think it was, was it? One of the old hosts of um, film spotting. I can't remember if it was this movie that they were, they were basically rant. It was like, it's like low rent film for people getting into foreign film spotting was, I think it was somebody on films, not like one of their recent hosts, but I think maybe their older host. Okay. Cause that doesn't, I've been, I've been, haven't been following in a while, but that does not sound like Josh or Adam. No, no. I think it was the host before maybe Michael Phillips, but <laughs> no i like michael phillips i love michael phillips um... <laughs> so i don't mean that disparagingly but of the three that i'm used to hearing on that show he's the one i could most predict saying that yeah no it was it was somebody who's not on the show anymore but it really okay it really it might have actually now that i'm saying that that might have been city of god he was talking about whoa which now really that's... seems out there i've i've heard some backlash to that movie in recent years and i i can't get behind that it's yeah. brilliant it is. It really is. Um, anyway, I won't I, lie. I, it kind of turned me off film spawning for a while. That's fair. That's what? fair. Sometimes it is like just the simple thing where you're like, just Ugh. the pretension of it kind of drives me crazy. But you know, I I probably lean closer to that attitude to this movie. Although it's not even so much that I think I'm above it, so much as and it's been a while since I've watched it. I remember just kind of like losing interest by the midway point. Yeah. Um. The end I get wins me back in a big way. That mm-hmm. final sequence is like, and that's like laying it on as thick as it can be laid on, but it works. It does work. Yeah. In part because that Morricone score is just uh, exquisite, as they often are. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first half of this movie is definitely a lot stronger. There's no doubt. Like when it's when it's the kid, that's the good mm-hmm. stuff. And I guess in some ways, like this, it's it's interesting. City of God is the one that came up because if though these films probably seem completely different if they share one thing it's that their director's legacies are defined by the one film i don't think uh, giuseppe tornatore's any subsequent efforts ever came close to this and when that happens it's often easier i think to you know start to wane on a filmmaker like i remember again another totally different film but drive was like so seminal for me once upon a time and i still love that movie but it doesn't mean what it used to. And part of that is that Nicholas winning reference since then has not really dazzled me. Who knows if he kept making stuff that I loved, maybe I would still be like drives best ever, but interesting. You know, interesting. That's still a five star film. I'm sorry. That's just, that's a, that's just interesting way to look at something. And I find it's not like an intentional thing. It's not like, you know, I love Drive, and then I saw Neon Demon, and I'm like, I don't know about you anymore, Nicholas. It's just like this subconscious thing where, like, you know. Yeah, but but the movie that he made is still the movie that he made. Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, Drive is also an example where, like, what it's doing is very appealing to a teenager, 
Let's sort of say it's not appealing yeah. to me now, yeah, but it hit a sweet spot at, I don't know, 16, 17, however old I was when it came out, that while I still appreciate those things, it maybe doesn't seem quite as like, you know, you know, as life fulfilling as it did then. But I think there is also a quality of it, or I wonder if there's a quality to it too, where I'm just like, yeah, I'm also just disappointed in what he's made since. And it's cool. That would retroactively. It's it's more your view of the film. And it, I think it's more like a subconscious thing. Like if I were to rank like, well, if, I, if I'm ranking my favorite films of the 2010s, for example, um, we're so far away from <laughs> cinema paradiso <laughs> now. But, you know, if I'm doing that, like my mind's going to go to like the directors in some ways first or they're going to be like conflated. So it's like, well, there's, you know, the master and phantom thread, like one of them's going to be up high, maybe both of them link ladder before midnight and also boyhood, you know, Nolan with inception and Dunkirk. Like there's not to say every filmmaker needs to have made multiple things I love, but when there's like a body of work there, and this is something that's like a critique that sometimes gets put forth to auteur theory is that it like privileges those who have larger bodies of work. Um, But you know, I, again, like it's not a conscious thing. I haven't yeah. like docked but points. But it's interesting. It's just interesting to see how different brains work. Because if you say that, if I'm going looking back to my 2010s, right, the way I'm going to do it for myself is I'm going to go year by year, and I'm going to say what were the best movies of this year and what were the best movies of this year. So that's where I I would go. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it also people. depends how I'm making the list. Like if I'm doing it from my head, it's probably just more like the names that come yeah. to mind first. If I was like sitting down and like systematically doing it, I probably could do more of like a year by year. But if it's just from memory, it's like, oh, GTA, what films am I doing with from him? So interesting. And, and I would wonder if something similar has happened to Cinema Paradiso where, and part of it too is like schmaltz, people tend to turn on quicker. Yeah, I can be, well, I mean, I say that it's sappy, but I don't know that it's that sappy really. I mean, it's, yeah. It's a little saccharine, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I think it gets like, I don't think it's a bad thing, but it it sentimentality becomes very easy to be snobby about. And the film is sentimental. It is. So well, that's OK. Movies are for everybody. And I like that this film says that. I agree. Well, on the topic of, you know, the director's greater body of work and how that affects legacy, we'll move to a director who cares a great deal about that such thing has let us know many times well, in interviews does, to the point where he forgets how math works. <laughs> hey, now we don't have to get technical here. Uh, we're of course talking about Quentin Tarantino. Um, and specifically, I mean, a lot of his movies actually are movies about movies to some extent, some more than others, but I'm going with Inglorious bastards um, where it is very much a cinematic revenge against the Nazis. Um, and what I'm talking about is specifically the explanation of nitrate film, how nitrate film burns. It's highly flammable, burns many times faster than paper, and therefore, you know, is what the characters end up using to burn down the theater and, and kill the Nazi high command at the premiere of Nation's Pride. And generally, there's a lot I love about this. I love that it isn't just that revenge happens in a movie theater, but that film itself is the mechanism by which revenge is enacted. Um, you know, I mentioned in my video on Inglorious Bastards and Lady in the Water that like film doesn't literally come to life and kill the Nazis, 
But this is about as close as you can get to that idea without invoking like a supernatural presence, you know, that film itself is the texture that brings about the end of the Third Reich and Tarantino's, uh, you know, mad world of uh, revisionist history. And there's also, I think, a more cynical quality to that. I can't remember the uh, writer who sort of put forth this interpretation of the film. They're referenced in my Bastards video. But uh, basically this idea then that, you know, this sort of reimagining of history also requires the destruction of film itself. And that being a reflection of like to destroy the Nazis from history is to, uh, in, in a sense, destroy a Hollywood, which has built so much of its cinematic lineage on uh, consistently reproducing narratives of Nazi bad guys and, and uh, um, besieged Jewish victims, which is not an interpretation I fully agree with, or at least I don't think it's, it's not totalizing, but there's an interesting quality to that too, that it's not just triumphant, it's destructive. The celluloid does burn, the theater explodes. Um, and all that's great. But what I really want to talk about is when they're explaining how nitrate film works, they show a clip from an old movie where, you know, as Sam Jackson narrates, you couldn't even bring it onto a, a public, uh, like a bus or public transportation. It's like, hey, you can't bring those out and have the films, ain't they? Yes, sir. Well, they're flammable. You know, great little old movie clip to explain the concept. It's fun, has that Tarantino poppy quality, is a very literal example of his sort of remixing from other older films. And that's great. But I also wanted to ask ian do you know what film is being shown in that clip oh, i'm on the spot uh i have no idea it is a film called sabotage from 1936 directed by one alfred hitchcock interesting and the reason i love that is because i love how it's both the most obvious reference one could make in cinephilia but also the least obvious because like hitchcock is historically speaking, probably the most famous director. At any given point, yeah. it's probably someone else. But if you take throughout history who defines the idea of a director, it's Hitchcock in terms of academically, in terms of the presentation, in terms of style, his his own celebrity. Hitchcock is the ultimate director. And so much of his own history and mythos is tied into branding himself. And yet when Tarantino nods to him, in his movie about movies, it's not in a very obvious winking way that even the most basic level cinephile, you know, is going to go, oh, yeah, it's Hitchcock. I get it. <laughs> it's with sabotage, which is not anywhere close to being the most well-seen Hitchcock film. It comes from the 30s and even amidst his 30s work, it's very much less popular than the likes of the 39 Steps of the Lady Vanishes. Uh, this is a not totally obscure movie, but within his filmography, it's definitely in the bottom section, at least in terms of popularity, not in terms of quality. It's very good. Um, and I just love that. I love it as a as a way of like economic storytelling of having this clip and just like this explains why nitrate film is flammable really effectively. Let's use it. And as a way of like, we're going to throw an Easter egg in here for the cinephiles, but we're going to make you work for it. That's kind of Quentin Tarantino's MO though. <laughs> it's like, I am not it's a great example the obvious of this pick. It really is. But it's also, but it is the obvious pick too. Like it's like it's Hitchcock, but it's like hidden and like in sabotage. Yeah, that's that's good. No, I wouldn't. I didn't know that movie. I don't think I've seen Sabotage. I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's pretty good. Yeah, and it actually is also, as that clip might imply, 
kind of a movie about movies. It's about a sabotage plot, but the main character works in a movie theater. And there's an interesting scene where she tries to layer upon layer. Yeah, exactly. She tries to forget a tragedy in her life by watching cartoons in the theater and it works for a little bit and then it stops working, which is kind of an interesting commentary on this idea of like, you know, movies as escapism, like, yes, but like up to a point that works, but mm-hmm. they can only take you so far. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that is definitely Tarantino to be like, yeah, I'll give you something, you know, but not really. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be obscure about it and he'll do that. But I, yeah. I he do, he doesn't do it. I don't know. Do you think it's pretentious of him to do something like that? Or is it just that's just kind of him? No, I mean, I, I like it's just kind of him. I'm I tend to be reticent to label anything pretentious at this yeah. point. Um, to it's, me, it's certainly it does. Well, in terms of I think it's an authentic for him. I don't th- I, think I don't so think too. I don't think he's trying to impress upon the viewer how smart he is. No. Um, so I, I guess if that's the way we're defining pretension, I don't think it counts. Um, and I think it's also just in execution. This scene is too playful. Like, if you know it's Hitchcock, it's kind of fun. But if you don't, it's just, like, an old movie clip that explains... Like, when I first saw the film, when I was, like, 14, good God, um, I just assumed it was, like, an old... Not even movie, but, like, um, like essentially, like, new sh- real short of, like, you know, like, some, like, explaining nitrate film, like, just as a, I don't know, public service, <laughs> free TV to just have, like, a news story on this. Yeah. Um. I had no idea it was a narrative fiction, let alone a Hitchcock movie. So it doesn't like stop anything. Um. But if you know, you know. You know, you know. It is interesting when you're talking about like how the film is, the flammability of the film is used against the Nazis, and when you think about it, it is interesting just what a what footprint not not just nazi germany but world the world war ii in general has on film like mm-hmm. how many f- movies are there that are connected to that conflict in some way shape or form there's a lot for sure for sure a, because that was a pretty strong golden age of hollywood while that was going on mm-hmm. both before during and after and then just it's just a conflict that we as a culture have been living with ever since and so it's natural to make movies about it um mm-hmm. well even that the nazi becomes the cinematic shorthand for evil like star wars is about nazis in world war ii it's not really but it is at the same time which then begs know? the question without movies does nazis being that shorthand for evil exist to the same level yeah it's a good like, question that's a question to ask well, in the other uh, part of it, and this is riffing very much from Dan Olson's video on Triumph of the Will, but he makes the point that the, you know, when people use the shorthand of Nazis on film, they tend to draw on the imagery of Triumph of the Will, which is a Nazi propaganda film, basically, and he ends this video with this line of like, you know, our collective image of this group of people is exactly what they wanted you to think of when you thought of them. Which is also an interesting mm-hmm. thing the film's playing with because it's it's a movie about movies and there's a celebrat- there's a celebratory quality to it, but it's also a very dark movie because it's about 
the Nazis seizing the cinematic apparatus to make propaganda, to make themselves more powerful and to make their enemies look weak, which is also part of the plot of the movie. Um, but I also think Tarantino does something really subversive there where when he shows nation's pride, the film within a film doesn't resemble Nazi propaganda at all. It resembles Soviet Union propaganda, specifically Battleship Potemkin. So even when he's, you know, employing that as a narrative device, stylistically, he's not taking that influence, uh, which might just be an aesthetic thing because Nazi propaganda films are bad, not just ethically, but they're like boring. They're badly made. They're slow and monotonous. And and especially for like what nation's pride we see in the film where it's short snippets, whereas Battleship Potemkin and Soviet propaganda soviet montage is so quick and frenetic that you get a few frames and it's exciting so that might have also just been a uh utilitarian decision but i think there's also yeah. some real political um subverted material there too yeah yeah it's interesting to think about um oh just to connect it to cinema paradiso the flammability of nitrate is a pretty important piece in in that movie too is it? I don't remember. Yeah, it is. And actually, right after my moment, they have a the there's a scene where the film catches on fire. Hmm. So he should have shown Cinema Paradiso when he was like, "Nitrate film was so <laughs> flammable," and you show <laughs> that scene. Um. Yeah. <laughs> the only problem is that this movie. Well, I guess that doesn't matter. He throws in David Bowie songs. Yeah, exactly. Movie set in World War II. What does it matter? He throws in black exploitation influence when they introduce Hugo Stiglitz. That's fair. Who's not even black. <laughs> but the font on his name is very much has like a black exploitation vibe. Um, you know. Yeah, this is quite the quite the mix of different movie elements in this film. Mm -hmm. There's like that one part part where Sam Jackson just does narration. Yeah, which is the scene. And then yeah. But then he doesn't come back as the narrator ever again. Nope. Like, that's it. <laughs> He's like, it's just a one shot scene. I will say that's that's also Billy Wilder advice. That's uh, and it's something you actually see him learn if you watch through his movies is this idea of like, you don't need to have a narrator the whole movie. You can have like, obviously, if like if it's used badly, it can be awkward. If it just whenever you need to fill in a gap, you have like, oh, gee, Willikas, this is what happened. That sucks, but you don't need to just because you introduce a narrator early or at a certain point to establish something, you don't need to keep going back to them. Like the apartment opens with narration and then you never hear it again. I never even really realized that, to be honest. I guess this you're is right. magic. Yep. Yeah. It's not me, it's Billy. <laughs> don't thank me, thank Billy. And I mean it it's just a fun like history lesson because I don't know that a lot of people knew about the flammability of film until Glorious Bastards came out. Not in our day and age. No, I'd imagine not. Mm. Again, I didn't. I was 14, though, so I didn't know much of anything. Where is this in your Tarantino? Number two. Number two. Pretty firmly. I, it could be number one one day. I mean, that's what the man himself says, so... <laughs> Um, I think it's brilliant. I mean, just to think about how much is going on beneath the surface, but then also just how entertaining the surface is too. There's a lot to appreciate. If there's one thing I regret from my uh, Indiana Jones in the Face of Jewish Vengeance video essay from back in the day is that it kind of gave Bastards uh, short 
a kind of shorthanded bastards in terms of how I talked about its cinematic portrayal of Nazis on film. Um, hope I somewhat rectified that with the bastards and lady in the water video, because it is like a really nuanced and interesting, complicated film. That's also supremely entertaining and somehow manages to be like this wild Tarantino ride, but also have this real weight and uh, resonance to its core too. Yeah. I agree with all that. I keep going back on whether it's number one or not for me. Yeah. I'm assuming pulp is your other one. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe the cliche choice, but come on, it's still like, (laughs) it's, it's great. Even beyond like my own, like teenage fanaticism for it and how I think like a lot of, you know, young men when they're getting into movies, even looking past that and just watching it on its own terms, it's like, yeah, this still really, like, really holds up. It does. Um, so. Yeah, but this one, I don't know. This one just keeps, every time I watch it, it's like, it depends which one I just saw last, right? Yeah. That's my favorite of his movies at the moment. That's fair. That's fair. <clears throat> hey, man, we won't know until his, his number 10. Oh, 11? Yeah, okay. It's number 10. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know what? I majored in film, not math. So <laughs> that's what it comes down to. I'll side with the filmmaker on this one, not the mathematicians. I it's pretty easy to count to a Not when you count Kill Bill as one movie. Yeah, well that's that's your problem. <sighs> if you were making a list of your favorite <clears throat> films of the 2010s, yeah. Right? You and you would you put both Kill Bill separately? That takes up two slots unnecessarily. Yeah, but that's what it is. So it's the same thing with Lord of the Rings? Yeah, that's so you, what it you, is. Your top movies, you got three spots taken up by Lord of the Rings. That's correct. That's, that's just unnecessary real estate. It's, it is what it is. They're Think about the other movies. films that could be there. Yeah, I understand that. Doesn't make it so. I can't just say, okay, these movies are just going to go together. But you can. No. It's wrong. I'm not talking about putting Godfather with the Dukes of Hazard. These are films that have very relevant reasons to be matched. My favorite movie of all time is James Bond. No, because those films don't have valid reasons to be matched. For one, there's more than 20 of them. <laughs> Two, creative yeah, but the creative team is inconsistent across those. There's no shared story. There's, I guess there is now, and it's a shite shared story. But that don't fit. You know that's a different animal than Lord of the Rings or Kill Bill. What's the most influential movie of the last 10 years? It's MCU. Again, you're being willfully obtuse. <laughs> and also, it is the most influential, and its influence has been garbage. <laughs> <laughs> all right hold on i'm looking something up okay, okay. We're oh, inter- oh interesting kill bill volume one came out in 2003 and kill bill volume two came out in 2004 how can one movie come out in two separate years interesting i mean technically speaking one film comes out in different years all the time when they're re-released or when they're repackaged on dvd or blu-ray or you know i jaws is playing at my local theater in like two weeks so technically it's also coming out and if you go to IMDb, the best movie of 2023 i mean it might be the best movie i see in a theater in 2023 well that's almost certain to be true but i mean it depends if i go to seven <laughs> samurai on father's day that'll be uh 
shout out to the screening room. They got some fun picks this summer. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure we've argued about this before. We don't need. We have. We should yeah. stop. <laughs> Look, the, the, what it comes down to is I want one more Tarantino movie and you're saying you're good. And that's I think that means I'm right. No, I'm saying he's dumb for limiting himself. to. 10 well, movies. I agree with that. <laughs> I think he should continue making movies till he dies. And even yeah. a little bit beyond if he can pull it off. Like just put <laughs> I mean, a bunch of balls did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get tied up with the uh, foreign government and they have a coup and it's a whole thing. And then the movie just gets tossed into the Disney vault next to Song of the South and <laughs> No, eventually gets pumped out later. Yeah. That'd be great. There we go. Nice. Yeah, it's interesting because Glorious Bastards isn't usually thought of as a movie about movies, but it definitely is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And I think it's like, it might be maybe the best in that subgenre. Just kind of weird to say, because like, again, the the types of stories that are told within the movies about movies are so broad that it's very difficult to compare them. Mm-hmm. Like even just like this versus the player versus cinema Paradiso, right? Like yeah. it's not really a genre, but there's certain thematic, obviously there's the clear uh, uh, commonality of like being about movies, but I think there's also thematic parallels you can bring up. I mean, clearly flammable film is, is a running <laughs> motif in these movies. That's right. So, mm. Yeah, well, good pick of the nitrate. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll move on to my next pick, which is from 2016, and is from the Coen Brothers. So we're we got some we got some big name filmmakers in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to talk about Hail Caesar. And Hail Caesar's it is it's a little bit more along the lines of play the player because it's more of the behind the scenes. This is how the movies are getting made. It's not as cynical though. Um, but it's, it's, it's a comedy for sure. And so, yeah, it's looking behind the scenes, kind of like, you know, fifties ish Hollywood. And they kind of get into the whole, um, blacklisting idea, communism coming in and how they're dealing with that. And it stars Josh Brolin as what's, what's his actual role. He's just kind of the guy that Is gets he the stuff head done. of the studio. I don't think he's the head of the studio. I think he just is. He's like a fixer. Yeah. Yeah. He just gets stuff. Done. Oh, yeah, he is. He's a fixer. Yeah. So, yeah. OK, so this is a real thing that the studios used to have whose job was to keep bad tabloid, you know, press away. So, if you know, your your star who you're marketing is like uh, a chaste virgin is having wild sex orgies. He keeps that on the down low. <laughs> yes. I don't know uh, how one gets this job, but this was a real <laughs> job. He there's a scene in the movie where his studio is making a movie about about Jesus. And because they don't want to offend any religious groups, he brings in this panel who've who've read the screenplay. Um, and so in there, and this is this is not the beginning of a bad joke, but he's got like a Catholic priest, an Orthodox priest, he's got like a southern methodist reverend or i think um and a rabbi a jewish rabbi and so they've all gone through the script so he's getting their ideas about um you know what uh have they portrayed uh, jesus christ in a good light and what would the reception be from all their different groups and (laughs) 
Okay, before the scene gets into like, like they really get into a bunch of religious debate. Basically, the whole thing devolves into who is Jesus? What is, what's his actual power? And they go back and forth on this. Um, although before they do that, there's a really funny line where he's like, I really want to get, I want your input on this. And, when, and the Orthodox priest is like, how can he jump from one chair to the other? <laughs> he's like, uh, okay, uh, we'll look into that. But... <laughs> But I was looking more for your angle on anyway. It's a funny scene altogether. But they really erupt into like this big religious debate, and especially the rabbi who's kind of like a three against one because um because he's of the Jewish faith, and so he's got a whole different viewpoint behind who Jesus is. And they have got they go back and forth, and things start getting really, really heated. Um finally Josh Brolin's got it got to narrow things down and he starts asking them one by one. Like, what are, what do you think of this script? Are we dealing with things respectively? And they go through, yes, yes. And then the one, the Catholic priest starts talking about it again. And then him and the rabbi start getting into it again. And the rabbi gets really heated. And then finally he says, and rabbi, what's your opinion? And he's like, eh, I haven't an opinion. <laughs> and then the scene just ends there. <laughs> Which just is so funny. It's such a funny way to end that scene. Um it's just a great scene all around. The rabbi is played by uh, Robert Picardo's his name, which I think he's best known from like Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I was going to say, I recognize that name from yeah. various Red Letter Media videos about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, and he's really good at it. Like, he's very funny. Um, and I don't I just he's honestly, that's a Joe Dante I, regular, isn't he? I don't know, actually. Possibly. I think he's in all of Joe Dante's movies. That would yeah, that would be cool. Including the great small soldiers. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think that's right. Um, I don't know that I have much to say other than that's really funny. But... <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> it is funny. Um, although there is a, something to say that like this whole movie is just full of religious allegory. And this scene is the most... Uh, definitive aspect of that but like i've heard takes on this movie where even josh brolin's character himself is like looked at as like a religious figure and i don't know have you heard these takes before yeah and the idea of like the studio is like 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 a church in and of itself or like a um there's a sort of hierarchy of belief that mirrors a religion but it's like the studio system um, which certainly is uh, applicable in terms of how film studios were run at that time. This idea of like, you know, the sort of enshrined mega powers and the very clearly deline- delineated hierarchies. And they were um, sort of not that they had been around that long, I guess, but they had a lineage behind them in a history and um, passed down in family even. Um yeah, I, I haven't dove too deeply into some of those takes with this film, in part because I haven't seen it since it came out. Um, I meant to rewatch it for this, and uh, I did not, but um, I have heard those takes. The other thing that's interesting, too, is that, you know, the historical religious epic was like a massive part of 50s Hollywood at huge, this stage. Huge, yeah. Yeah, like a benchmark of their um production starting with the robe in 1953 um really starting earlier but that's what kicks off the widescreen technoscope epics 
Um, and one wonders, for example, if like a scene like this, like how much of that is based in a reality of like, did they have to consult with, or was there, did studios consult when they were making like Ben-Hur or, the, or King of Kings? I would imagine to some extent they must have. I would think so. Even even the movie that he's describing that they're doing, it sounds very much like the robe. Like it's, yeah. it's a very similar idea. So Yeah, and, and then thinking too how close a relationship the Catholic Church had with Hollywood throughout. I mean, the, part of the reason the production code exists is because of pressures from the Catholic Church uh, and how... Uh, Catholic powers throughout the states were central in controlling film censorship in part for wanting to use film as a propaganda tool in their own right and how a lot of films tried to repackage Christianity as like less about dogmatic belief in and of itself and the scriptures of the text and more you know common sense ideals kind of thing um and having that wrapped up in this and the irony that like, despite that many of the film studios are run by Jewish emigres, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe why the rabbi, I have no opinion. Maybe that's <laughs> part of that joke is this idea. And the Coens are Jewish themselves. Part of that idea of like, you know, despite the fact that it's Jewish men who are by and large running the movie business at this time, they're still kind of taking a back seat and allowing the religious ideologies of, Catholics take center stage. Um, maybe that's part of, maybe there's something else to that joke that I'm missing, especially as a Gentile, but I think that's uh, an interesting read to bring to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Though the, the rabbi is very, yeah, he's so funny. And that's <laughs> even like, even when they get into the debates, it's funny because they, they, when they're debating the nature of, of God and they're like, he's, they're like, god's a vengeful god they're like no 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 you're that's the older god he's like what he got over it <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's and, it's a very good scene and it's a good example too of like especially if you're familiar with some of the 50s hollywood religious epics which there are some good ones there's a lot of not so good ones they're very self-serious they're very self-satisfied they're very like insisting upon their own importance and so this scene is even funnier when you have that context to see like kind of petty squabbling <laughs> and, you know, how do you get from one chair to the other? Like stuff like that, like is much funnier when you're familiar with exactly how those movies feel. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny I think the, the, the re- there's a lot though to that, the religious reads of the film and thinking of how Hollywood has always been. And especially at this time is really, entwined with um religion and especially catholicism despite again that it's jewish people running the studios um so there's really something really uh poignant and cogent about using hollywood to as like a, a metaphor for faith and worship and religious structure in and of itself yeah um it's i think when I watch it again, I think I'm going to try to watch it from that angle. I think that would be interesting just to kind of see how much weight that allegory has. Even the idea of Eddie being a fixer, it's like preserving the sanctity of yeah. the studio. And I remember there's a scene, I don't remember this super clearly, but I want to say there's a scene where someone suggests to him the studio is being in some way like wrong or immoral or some to the effect paint it, paints it in a negative light. And he either just like either he punches the guy or he very like shuts him down very firmly 
and this idea that like he is a true believer in spite of the fact that his job is to hide the the bullshit that he would be familiar with but at the same time it's like you got to figure maybe someone who has that job would need to be a true believer that's why they do it yeah because it's like it's for this greater good and that's that's worth preserving it's interesting you haven't seen this movie since it came out. Did you not warm to it? I didn't love it at the time. Well, um, here, this is what I'll tell you. I was kind of in the same boat. Like when I saw it, I was like, okay, that was okay. But, and this seems to happen with almost every Coen Brothers movie. It warms to you. Like, because mm-hmm. I, then I caught it on TV a little bit later. I'm like, you know what? There's some pretty funny stuff in here. There's some pretty good stuff in here. And, and I grew to actually quite like it. I think it's. I'd know, like to give it a second go. Yeah. I would recommend it. I mean, the would that it were so simple scene alone. I was like, okay, <laughs> this so is pretty weird. great. <laughs> yeah. I know that's the scene everyone cites, but it's fantastic. Yeah. It's like they took that scene from um, singing in the rain and then just made it so much better and so much funnier and so much <laughs> stri- more stretched out. <laughs> it is the perfect line for a Texan cowboy to try and deliver. <laughs> and Ray Fiennes is the perfect man to try and walk him through it as patiently as he can so good (laughs) yeah that's a great scene nice all right so that was the coen brothers well we'll end with uh martin scorsese and you're probably listener being like oh he's gonna talk about hugo no i am not (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna talk about casino and you might be thinking but dan casino is not about movies casino is about a casino i know i saw it And you are right, but I do think the ending of the film strikes me as being very relevant to Scorsese's own career as a filmmaker when you view it as a metaphor for changes in Hollywood, specifically the monologue that Ace Rothstein is giving towards the end where he's talking about basically how, you know, he and his mafia buddies, they end up kind of losing it all, all their control over the Vegas casinos and watching it all go away. And he talks about corporations coming in and buying it up and taking it all over. And he has this line where like today it looks like Disneyland. And there's probably more disappointment in that idea than there is throughout the rest of the film, despite the many acts of violence and crime, this idea of like just corporate sleaze taking over this world in some ways is more heartbreaking than like literal murder, which is, I don't think is necessarily the case that Scorsese feels that that is a greater injustice injustice, but there is like a certain sadness when you get to that end monologue. And I do think it's very relevant to think of in terms of the end of the new Hollywood movement in the seventies. And this movement that Scorsese was a massive part of where it's kind of the last, it's often held up as like this last great Uh, era in American filmmaking where not to say it was the last great time where American films were made great American films are made every year but the last time that you have this convergence of art and commerce that the big movies being made were character driven complex um, uh, ambiguous in their moralities adventurous in their cinematic technique and that these films could also you know they weren't just coming out on the fringes they were being mainstream Hollywood Uh, output and there was an audience for them and then by the end of the decade that wanes away you have you know the corporations very literally corporations which starts in the late 60s but really consolidates by the 80s starts buying out major studios most famously or most infamously maybe columbia pictures for a while was owned by coca-cola um 
you know, now everything's a corporate subsidiary. Sony now owns Columbia. Um, Disney is, of course, an integrated uh, business with all sorts of assets and all sorts of entertainment areas. These aren't just companies that make movies. They're larger conglomerates. Um, but also this idea that like Ace and all his criminal buddies from Chicago, I don't think Chicago quite counts as like East Coast fully. It's a little closer to you know, inland, but it is relative to like California, it's East coast. And in the same way, like Scorsese comes from New York, Coppola initially comes from New York. Uh, De Palma, I believe is from Jersey. Uh, guys like Arthur Penn and Mike Nichols cut their teeth first, not in film, but on Broadway, they come to Hollywood. It's this idea of like all these guys from, you know, East coast, as it were coming to Hollywood, coming to the West, going West young man, and taking the reins of power and making their own art before the corporations come in and force them out. And that's broadly speaking, the tragedy of it. And I know like Gene Hackman has, has been quoted. It's in one of Mark Harris's books is saying that the whole New York Hollywood thing really was kind of a red state, blue state thing at the time. Mm. So this division was pretty firmly felt uh, at least artistically. And I do think that casino, even though it's not, obviously literally about movies it's about the mafia and it's about gambling and it's about the uh, criminals and whatnot there is this metaphor to the ending that i don't know if scorsese was like consciously drawing on but i think is absolutely there that reflects his own um he and his peers having that power taken away from them and the disappointment and disillusionment um that comes from you know having briefly been able to play having paradise at your fingertips and then blowing it all. And that's the other thing. If it is a metaphor, if you do read it as a metaphor for the new Hollywood, it it's not strictly speaking a, ah, uh, damn, it's so unfair what happened to us. The film makes it very clear that like Ace and Nikki, they deserve what they get. They are the ones who blow it up. You know, they're not innocent schmoes who have it taken away from them. Their actions deliberately cause it. So if it is a metaphor, it's a self-critical one. Maybe Scorsese saying, hey, maybe I shouldn't have done all that cocaine. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> have made New York, New York. Maybe Francis shouldn't have made one from the heart. Or if he did, maybe he shouldn't have spent millions and millions of his own money on it. Um, you know, and I like that. And I think it's a good example of how even if it's not explicitly about movies, it kind of is. And that layer gives it uh, an added richness. That's a good read on the movie. And it's coming from somebody that that makes sense to come from. And I like the idea that there is a sense of personal responsibility there. Not maybe, maybe not for Scorsese himself, but for that, that group. Right. Because I mean, let's face it, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have connections to that group as well. And they're kind of the ones that kicked off the whole um, mm -hmm. corporatization of, of movies in a sense. And they're the California ones. Yeah. Oh, those Californians. <laughs> Especially George. Like, he's born and raised, I think, yeah. anyway. I could be wrong yeah, on that. Yeah, no, he but... is. Don't you remember American Graffiti? I did actually just pick that up on Blu-ray. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, that's a good read on it. I like that. Um, it... <laughs> it does say something, though, that it's like... The corporatization, yeah, I get that. But of of like a criminal gambling empire. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, are mm -hmm. you really going to shed a tear for that? But, um, well, and that's the other thing, like in some ways, 
the reason it works as a metaphor is because of that shared corporatization. But that's also just the history of everything in 20th century yeah, America. That's true. You know, like it, 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 that's the nature of the world. It, it, it has its fingers and everything. So, you know, and, and kind of what we were talking about with like, you know, how much of film is shaped by World War II, not just in terms of movies about it, but movie history that's shaped by it. And there's a similar thing at play here, um, which maybe makes creating metaphorical connections a little too easy. But uh, I do think there's something really. Uh... Like, was it inevitable? How long could New Hollywood go right sure there is definitely that question you know mm-hmm. yeah and how long can uh your guys like ace and nikki run vegas yeah it can't it's unsustainable and so you know the house when, when you have a corporate uh basis though and you've got corporate control the house really can't always win and the fact too that like the line is it looks like disneyland also it's pretty point a little firmer um <laughs> especially, especially considering how he's been like framed amongst you know marvel geeks and stuff lately mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the funny thing is like in the 80s themselves disney was not necessarily like the immediate beneficiaries of that era but the ethos of the 80s corporate cinema becomes the ethos of disney and obviously, like it, the other th- factor is that, you know, if you look strictly just at film production, maybe Disney doesn't seem so hot in the 80s. But in terms of like greater corporate expansion, they do quite well. Um, and that's the other factor that comes into it is the idea of like, the, again, like the corporate monstrosities of it, where it's not really just about the movies themselves. They just become to go back to the player more product that the actual product doesn't really matter as long as it generates revenue who cares what it is right you know yeah that's a it's a good read it really is it makes you wonder like when did disneyland come out like middle mid 50s i think is when disneyland opened Mm -hmm. it makes you wonder if there was pushback to that if there was like like people in hollywood that were saying okay now that resented the fact that that made it seem like this movie company is now, I don't know, becoming more of a product. Maybe mm-hmm. I have no idea. I have no I'm idea curious. at the time. Curious. I know there's been writing, not even necessarily in like film scholars, uh, scholarship and film academic work, but in like sociological work that looks at Disneyland as this idea of like a, like an ideological um, microcosm of the world that like it wants to create and, and thinking about it as like the ramifications of that and the implications of that and the psychological effects it has. Um, but I don't know when the origins of that type of writing would have started. I don't know if it was like immediately in the fifties, people were talking about that, if that was being studied or if it was something that emerged um, as the decades wore on and Disney's foothold and culture grew and the idea of like i mean now the idea of like disney adults you know people who like the park and the it's not just like liking disney movies but so much of their own like life is structured around like disney products which i I mean i can't judge too fully because like i am a happy consumer i love buying my movies and i you know i've got all sorts of like geek stuff that would be difficult to part with but there is also something that's like 
a little insidious about it too at a certain level yeah certainly those people who go to disney parks by themselves as adults like multiple times a year one i'm like how can you afford that that doesn't seem expensive i'm lucky if i can go to the local park (laughs) and it's free (laughs) but i still just i i don't even have the time so i don't understand how that works but um yeah i mean that that line does seem to me too like that does almost make me wonder that it isn't a little bit knowing on Scorsese's part that like he is kind of making a statement about film history too. Yeah. Um, maybe not. Maybe it is all accidental, but it was a fortuitous accident. If so, yeah, that's a good. I like that read. It's good. I'm glad I could make my cheating work. <laughs> you always do somehow. You know what? I uh, I'm I'm good at lying and making <laughs> and, and arguing. Is what it comes down to. I, I I resent the attitude that um that says that like like people will say this about like English class when you're in like high school is like oh you just gotta be able to bullshit whatever which I don't really like but there is some truth to the idea of like needing to build your case compellingly and convincingly and and make it uh, a worthwhile argument. I I really believe the arguments I'm making so that helps. I'm not just like, eh, what's a wild thing I can throw out on the show? Because I didn't <laughs> I didn't look at the topic until 20 minutes before. Like, I really was like, you know what? Let's do Casino, because I think there's something here. Yeah, that's good. And uh, Scorsese, still saying that things are like Disneyland. Yeah. They're all amusement parks, right? You should listen to this man. Yeah. <laughs> he knows he's trying to help about. us for so... It's 1995, he was like... The MCU sucks. He said it then. <laughs> He's like, heed my warning. <laughs> Look what they did to Ace. The man just wanted to run a casino. And they tore him up. They tore him up. I do think Ace is the most, of all Scorsese's like violent, you know, immoral protagonists, he's the most moral. He's the most decent. I agree with you. He does the least evil shit. <laughs> yeah. And he keeps his pants nice and pressed. He does, yeah. So. Yeah, he cares, and he just cares very much about, like, I mean, that's the other thing, like, in terms of, like, you know, that Otorist perfectionism, like, him being, like, I want every muffin to have the exact same amount of blueberries, and it's, like, <laughs> that's insane, but you also hear stories about, like, you know, directors having seemingly unreasonable demands, but, you know, I'm not going to defend necessarily all those demands, but it's coming from a place of, in part, wanting to perfect your craft yeah and there's something admirable about that even if if i was working in that restaurant and was told exact same amount of blueberries in every muffin (laughs) i would die on the spot (laughs) just imagining that labor is making my my skin burn oh yeah nice all right well we'll move on to my last pick which is well you mentioned that Hitchcock is the most famous director and I don't disagree with you, but the one that run that gives him a run for his money is of course, Stevie, good old Stevie. Um, so I decided, yeah, I'm gonna, right. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to bring up a movie that actually came out in 2022, the year of movies about movies, which is Steven Spielberg's the Fablemans, which is kind of like a fictional telling of his actual childhood. So, Here's 
I don't know that I've got a whole lot to say. This will be pretty quick, but I do want to talk about my relationship with Steven Spielberg because when I grew up, he was of course, and I'm, I know this is probably the same for so many other movie fans out there, but he's the first like guy that I realized was a director that the directors existed when it came to movies, that there's somebody behind all of this. And then, um, and so you learn Steven Spielberg's name pretty quickly because he was such a massive part of the eighties and into the nineties. Um, and he's made, you know, people's favorite movies. He's behind so many of them and me in particular, right? Cause I love the Anna, Anna Jones movies. I ET has always been one of my favorite movies. Jurassic park was a game changer for me. And he, he's behind all of those. And so I've been a Spielberg fan basically my whole movie going life. Um, and I remember like, you know, watching old documentaries. So when DVDs started coming out, they had special features and I'd watch those. And I remember watching, I don't remember which movies it was on. It might've been the Jaws documentary. It could have been anything about Spielberg's life and his childhood. And they talk about how he would make movies as kids. And I remember Spielberg talking about how he would make war movies with his friends and the one detail about how they'd set up they bury the wooden planks in the in the dirt and so when people would run over it would look like there's a mortar shell explosion behind them right and it's like a very simple way to special very simple special effect that little that he could do when he was just a young kid and I really just grabbed onto that I'm like it really got across the idea that anybody could really make a movie if they have a camera. Um, and I saved up hundreds of dollars at that time to get a movie camera, which seems ludicrous in this day and age when everybody has a movie camera in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did, and I got a pretty sweet camera. And, you know, me and my friends would just go out on a weekend and we'd film silly movies and and have a lot of fun doing it. and. Um, and it really struck, I think, I think I really struck like a love of movies in a different sense than just watching movies that I love, just getting a bit of a, more of a sense of, you know, this is something that anybody could really do if they had their heart set on it. Um, and just the idea that there is somebody behind all these movies. And so when I was watching the Fablemans, when he included that detail when uh, Sammy Fableman is making his war movie and they show him setting up the plank and ha- walking over it and showing how it works. I just love that he included that because that's a detail about his life that I've loved about it, about him ever since I was little. So yeah, it's more of a personal moment, I guess, but no, it's a good that, one though. I love that it showed up in the movie. And I mean, I think a lot of, you know, the wonder of like, especially when you're young and learning about how movies are made is those kind of, you know, ingenious little solutions to problems, you know, is is realizing like, and especially when you're looking at like um, Spielberg's the extreme example, because he's like a kid making these things with no money, which is with his friends, this idea of like, yep, just stepping on a plank and some and some dirt goes up and it looks like an explosion. And it's just how how simple and brilliant that is in terms of, um, achieving the effect you want yeah i want to say i think my own coming to spielberg was a bit different in that 
I don't think I clued in. I think we talked about this when we had Nate on many moons ago for a Spielberg episode, but it wasn't necessarily that like I knew I love Spielberg as much as I just kind of realized one day, like, oh, all these movies are made by the same person. Um, you know, like Indiana Jones, I think I had a much stronger attachment to than his others as a kid and kind of still now because Raiders is my favorite. But um, one of the first times I remember like learning about how movies are made was the Indiana Jones DVDs because they have the each one has like a making of uh, and they're not like the most, you know, detailed in terms of like film uh, documentaries, but they do go through like from conceptualizing the character and writing the scripts and stuff and going through like little things about like how, you know, the plated glass that separates Indy from the, the Cobra when he lands in the, the pit of the snakes and stuff like that. And yeah, like a lot of the, what sparks the imagination when you're young learning about, not just the idea that like films are, you know, made there's actors doing lines and they're shot in a camera, but like how those, how the magic's actually done. And those simple things are the things that, you latch on to especially presumably if you're someone who becomes like a filmmaker and those are the ideas that inspire you yeah didn't take with me i just wanted to watch the things <laughs> but um yeah and i mean the fablemans is a good example too because like a lot of the best or in terms of the parts of the film that are more about the wonder of movies which the film isn't strictly just that it gets a lot more yeah, cynical which we've talked about true. a couple times because i think we both really like this movie but uh, the scenes of him making movies as a kid are pretty consistently great. Yeah, you know, him poking awesome. the, the the holes in the in the image to get the pops on the the like the muzzle flare basically on the guns. Like, you know, it, it's still just like even as an adult watching it, it's still magical. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. It's it's interesting because you. I mean, this is stuff that anybody really could put together if he, if they really thought about it. But I mean, he's the one that did, and he's the mm-hmm. one that became the famous director. Um, well, and it's the idea too of like that too, though. What his genius is is not just that he's got a, or at least he used to have an amazing sense for, you know, populist film subjects and how to get a mass audience. It isn't just that he's good with the camera, good with actors. It's that he is clever about how to achieve the visuals he wants to achieve i mean that's why jaws is a classic in the first place is because you know the the prop didn't work so they had to become creative visually and like his entire career is a testament to that like yeah not to say you can make you know anyone can make jaws but you if you're thinking creatively you can accomplish a lot more than just the funds you're having will allow you to um, or the means that you have or the tech that you have. Um, and even to even to the point where the last scene in this movie, like the last final shot, is a very simple camera trick that is played up for a pretty awesome joke and a great way yep. to end the movie. And it's yeah, one of the funniest uh one of the funniest final moments in any film I think I've seen in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, and I mean it's also like in that that whole speech that that uh he gets at the end, which I'm still dancing around spoilers just in case but i'll i'll do it um it is interesting that it's like and apparently the true advice he got from this person but it's so simple in terms of just like where you put the camera and when what you're what you're paying attention to um yeah i wonder i mean the fablemans did not perform well 
box office wise, famously, disappointingly, you know, we're in the most juvenile time for film in a long time when Spielberg is making his most adult stuff now, which is no. a shame or his most adult stuff in a while. Um, but I wonder if there is going to be younger people who see the film and are inspired by it because it's showing someone who's so young doing so much amazing stuff with so much less technology than a kid growing up will have now. I hope movie. so. Me too. I do hope so. Me too. I mean, that. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, just watching it is like, it's such a... Even ignoring the fact that watching it, knowing it's about the great Spielberg, it's just a really entertaining drama. Yeah. <laughs> like... That's... It I, is. I genuinely think, obviously it gains power knowing it's Spielberg, but if somehow we lived in a parallel universe where this was just made by, like, someone who wasn't famous... It would be just as good. Maybe not just as good. It would have a different feel, but it would work even without the legacy of that director attached to it. Um, yeah, it's built It's built like just a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to be him necessarily. Although I will say... it's not. I was geeking out by the end when he's like young man Spielberg at that point, Sammy Fableman. I'm like, man, he got the haircut perfect. He looks just <laughs> like him. Oh, my God. It was kind of tripping me out because I haven't really seen photos of what Spielberg looked like when he was like a kid. So I didn't think about it too much. But when he got to like that, where it's like around where he's going to make uh, shortly before he makes something like Duel, I'm like, oh, I have seen what he looked like there. And they got it pretty spot on. <laughs> um, and I really yeah. like his performance. Gabriel LaBelle. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I, I was kind of he... hoping for a nomination for I knew it I knew that he wasn't going to get one but I was hoping that he would have. It was a competitive category this year but yeah, he would have been I would have probably put him in if I was putting up the 5. Yeah. So um I was just happy Paul Mescal got in at all. I mean retroactively because I didn't see the movie until after the nominations but because after Sun I think it would have been so easy to overlook his performance but mm -hmm. but um yeah. It's so cool that you knew that anecdote. I hadn't heard that about the the wooden planks. So yeah, that was just I had like, that in my head for ages. That's always just something that's always stuck with me. And that is an example of him. The legacy of he goes on to have does inform that because it's interesting watching those and thinking about the war movies he makes, especially the war movie he makes. Yeah. Um, you know, he's training for it when he's like a teenager. Yeah. Buck wild. Very cool. All right, there we go. It's interesting that you you chose the only scene that was about the actual making of movies. Did I? Not the, I guess I did. Not the production, not the culture. Not the not destruction the, of. Yeah, yeah. Not the physical, <laughs> but just like the actual being on a set and shooting something. No, that's true. Yeah. Speaking of, I just, I can't remember. Did you like Babylon? Because I just watched it. I that did. One. That was wild. <laughs> I really that like was Babylon. Something. It's my favorite Damien Chazelle movie. It's uh, it's got lots of highs and lots of lows. Like really bad. Yeah, I'm not surprised you were a big <laughs> fan. <laughs> I quite but there were some it. parts like there was just to to tie it into what we're talking about. That's when they. It's not a scene. It's like a pretty long segment of the movie where they're making like multiple movies at once on that hill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was amazing. Mm -hmm. That was so good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting counterpoint. I mean, I counterpointed it in the video on AI art to the player where, 
you know, Babylon, I think in a lot of ways is a pretty cynical movie about Hollywood's history. Mm -hmm. It's a film that like spends a long time focusing on, I mean, on the beginning with the elephant and it, you know, pooping everywhere, like is very like audacious and straightforward in portraying that, but more, there's also like sharper stuff there about like the fetishization, but also closeting of queer people, the, uh, horrible treatment of black entertainers historically uh i mean the the culmination of that story is like really upsetting to watch yeah. you know we see the labor that's chewed up and spat out and the horrible ways below the line workers are treated to um but also there is a marveling at the sheer work that goes into making a movie shooting something editing the film together writing the title cards and silent films like there's so much for whatever you know horrors that exist within that industry there is also a love of the process that's that to me is why i i think i like babylon so much is that it kind of going back to this idea of like is it a movie about movies that loves movies or is it a movie about movies that hates movies it is playing with both in interesting ways and i actually think nope is doing something really similar yeah, um i agree where it's like you know jordan peele is clearly on some level horrified by the abusive and dangerous things people will do to get the shot but he also gets that drive he's a filmmaker who cares a lot about his craft he gets why you go for that spectacle why you need to get that shot yeah so. and like and babylon like hail caesar has a great riff on that famous singing in the rain scene too yes <laughs> the take after take which is which i also thought was pretty awesome that was one of my favorite scenes that was like cathartic because it's their first time shooting the the specific people first time shooting sound um and it's it felt cathartic when you start watching a lot of early 30s movies the first wave of sound films some of them are really great but a lot of them are like you really feel the sluggishness you really feel them struggling to adapt and it's like so stilted and awkward and you know the sound itself is bad and inconsistent so to see it dramatized like <laughs> how viscerally unpleasant it was to work with that i was like oh man this is so great <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was good all right well i think we'll wrap her up there sweet well everybody let us know did we miss any movies about movies that you that you personally love yeah yeah give us give us a shout out and let us know Mm -hmm. so answer on the spotify uh, interact with the user thing yeah and uh tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds you can email at cinema and seconds at gmail.com and there we go you got anything to share dan um no new videos at the moment um but uh we'll be after the next one i'm gonna do which will be something a little bit just sort of lighter and fun will be the 100th video on eyebrow cinema which will Ooh. be on a much uh video essayed auteur um and then after that i have something even bigger which will hopefully finally drop this summer Excellent. so there's some hype for that <laughs> otherwise right. watch the ai art video it's uh it's still relevant because no every relevant. day there's seemingly some other development on ai art that makes me want to puke so <laughs> okay uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time.